All right, boys. They're on our left. They're on our right. They're in front of us. They're behind us. They have us surrounded. The poor savages, we've got them just where we want them. Such was the confidence of Israel fighting military battles. Israel was not created to disappear. They were a formidable and unique nation, and they knew it. God had chosen them. God had elected them as the apple of his eye among all the other nations of the world. When they went to battle, they didn't go alone. God accompanied them. The battle lines have been drawn. Israel is encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines. This is the first time in the book of Samuel they are mentioned. The first of 150. Who are they? Are they a foe to be feared? Or are they like the other enemies? Set them up, knock them down. The Philistines were a feisty bunch. They are mentioned as early as in the days of Abraham. They were sea peoples who invaded Canaan, Canaan land, God's promised land for Israel. Many historians say they originated on the island of Crete. They built ships and sailed away because they desired more land than the island could supply. Sea peoples, pirates of the Old Testament. They eventually got tired of living on ships, so they beached off the Mediterranean Sea. They made aggressive incursions into Israel's territory, even displacing the tribe of Dan, making them migrate north. The Philistines set up a pentopolis, a geographical area ruled by five cities, Ashdod, Ascalon, Gaza, Gath, and Ekron. They controlled all the land we now know as Palestine. In fact, the name Palestine is from the word Philistine. But even this territory wasn't enough for the Philistines. After spending so long on the sea, they developed an appetite for land, and they wanted to eat up more of it, hence the setting for this battle. You have the coastal people versus the people in the hills, God's people. Notice the topography. Uh, the Philistines, they may know the coast, but they don't know the hills, and this should be an easy win for Israel. Verse 2 of 1 Samuel 4 reads, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. That's more killed than in the bloodiest day in American history. 3,600 were killed in, in Antietam. 4,000 Israelite bodies like strewn across some farmer's field. What a bloody disaster. But it wasn't a total defeat. Most of the men turned with their tails between their legs and ran and headed for the hills. They regroup in verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now let's stop here for a moment. They're asking the right question. <laughs> they realize God is sovereign over their victories and over their defeats. It is true that the Lord allowed the slaughter. He did not accompany them into battle. God abandoned his people. 
However, it apparently never occurred to Israel to see any connection between their disobedience and their defeat. Their defeat was punitive. The Philistines were the whip of God. God had told Israel in Leviticus 26, 14. He said, but if you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, if you spurn my statues and if your soul abhors my rules, then I will do this. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again. Israel was defeated because God was displeased with them. Will they seek out the source of his displeasure? Well, they gather the elders of Israel, this group of 70 men. What will these wise men tell them to do? Verse 3b. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it, not him, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They say, hey, let's get the ark of God. It's only 20 miles away in Shiloh. Uh, people, re remember when we crossed the Jordan on dry ground? What went before us? They shouted, the ark! When we defeated Jericho, what marched around the walls with us? They shouted, the ark! That's what we need, the good old days with the ark. With the ark on the battlefield, we will leave those Philistines strewn across that field. So they send two priests, two soldiers to Shiloh to pick up the ark. It's a 20-mile journey, so while they're walking, let's you and I do a little digging in the dirt. Let's become archaeologists and find out what this box is all about. The ark was a gold-plated rectangular chest, 45 inches long and 27 inches high. It had a gold ring at every corner. Two gold-plated poles helped to move the ark without touching it. Inside the ark was the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. The mercy seat was... the was a lid over the ark. Some have called it an atonement cover. On the lid were cherubims. These are angels that are mentioned over 100 times in the Bible. Most people picture little chubby creatures. These were majestic creatures. The top of the ark was God's throne. And the law was under his feet. Once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would drain blood from a lamb and apply it on the mercy seat, which pictured covering the broken law with blood. This is not a magic box like Raiders of the Lost Ark. This was a portable symbol of God's presence, a tangible reminder, a visible earthly token that represented God's presence with man. It was Israel's holiest artifact. The chest of Acadia wood covered in gold was God's chest. But he did not reside in the ark. He didn't set up residence in the box. We are beginning in chapter 4 today and this will continue through chapter 7, what is called the ark narrative. Which is why we are going to do some archaeology. See what I did there? Archaeology, but spelled... 
You're not impressed? You're not impressed? Good, good. I'll, I'll take all the, all the pity. I'll take it all. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. <laughs> what a scene. Hophni and Phinehas carrying the ark. Wickedness holding holiness. Impurity carrying purity. Evil holding righteousness. Sinful hands touching God's pure gold. These two brothers had ignored the word of God, defamed the temple of God, and now they want the ark to come and save them. Verse 5, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. They shouted in wild exhilaration. They waved their banners. The ark bolstered their spirits. God is in the camp. There were tambourines. People were dancing and singing. They had church. They were excited, but not repentant. We will dig and excavate some truths from this text, and I'm hoping to find some discoveries that will help us. Archaeological discovery number one. You can't put God in a box. This was God's box, his representative symbol, but God wasn't in the box. He used the box to teach his people about his holiness and their sin. But to Israel, this box was nothing more than a rabbit's foot, a four-leaf clover, a lucky charm, a good luck charm. This, this just shows not only did they not understand the chest of God, but they didn't understand the God of the chest. They pulled out this ark saying, lucky charm time. Ooh, it's magically delicious. They failed to distinguish between the presence of God and the symbols of the presence of God. God was where the holy objects were, but God was not the holy objects. Keller points out that when you study scripture, the presence of God is sometimes attached to a particular person or a particular object, but only for a time. God is not always attached to that object. He is never permanently attached. He doesn't always boil at 212 degrees. Do you have a rabbit's foot theology? Is your Christianity just really superstition? Charles Spurgeon said, the very men who have had the least idea of what Christianity is, are the men who paid the most superstitious attention to outward forms. Well, I, I keep this painting of Jesus in my house because it brings blessing to me. I wear this cross around my neck and I keep it with me wherever I go so I know that God is with me. No. God isn't on your little cross or in your box. That cross won't save you. Only the Christ who died on it will. We can laugh at Israel thinking they can harness God's power, but we sometimes act comparatively. I get a minor version of this from time to time. It's usually when people are looking to join this church 
or sometimes when people leave this church. God met them in a certain program. Awana or women's ministry or men's camp out or Wednesday night services or kids Sunday school or youth group, whatever. God met them in a certain program. And they think, you have to do it at FFC because God's presence is attached to it. No. God's presence is not automatically attached to those things. Could you imagine Moses saying, hey, I, I only worship at a bush. Do you have a bush ministry? Yeah. God hit the bushes. You can end up worshiping not the presence of God, but the symbol itself. You can't put God in a box or a painting or a program. Archaeological discovery number two. You can't manipulate God's power. Israel thought, we'll show these Philistines. We'll bring out our military superweapon. The ark. This is a pressure tactic. They are trying to manipulate God into giving them victory. Putting God under pressure. He will have to save us now for his own name's sake. They are trying to twist God's arm. Friend, God makes demands of us. We don't make demands of him. God can't be manipulated. This is the sin of presumption. They want a genie in a bottle, baby. Rub the bottle and... None of you were born in the 90s. It's a song. They want a genie in a bottle. uh, Rub the bottle and and he comes out and does what they ask. God is no domesticated deity who does what we want, when we want, to whom we want. God made us in his own image. And ever since, we have been returning the favor. Making him into ours. Archaeological discovery number three. You can be desperate to have the power of God in your life, but simultaneously ignore the sin against God in your life. You can be desperate to have the power of God in your life, but simultaneously ignore the sin against God in your life. I I need God to rescue me from this defeat. Did your sin bring on that defeat? You're not fooling God with your religion. Philip says it looks like this. A crooked businessman who has little interest in God until he finds out God has the power to keep his business afloat. A a politician who takes sudden interest in God when pressure is applied by Christian constituents. A lazy student facing an exam turns to God for help to pass. Apart from what God can do to meet their immediate needs, such people have little genuine interest in God. Instead of seeking to become right with God, you can attempt to get the benefits from God. Well, I'm five verses into 34 verses. I need to pick up the pace. Verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power 
of these mighty gods. Plural. They are polytheists, so it's no surprise they ask, who can save us from the clutches of these super gods? The Philistines are not unfamiliar with the chest of God. They have heard of the golden box. Oral tradition was huge, and they were aware of what happened at Jordan and in Jericho. They anticipate defeat, but courageously vow to fight. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. They thrashed Israel. The gold box didn't do anything. They were seeking to use God. But God cannot be used for your little agendas. Obligate God. You don't get to do that. Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his face. Let's pause here. This man is sprinting. He's in mourning. He's torn his clothes. He's put ashes on his head. The cultural symbols for mourning, like the black veil in our culture. He runs 20 miles. Remember the topography, mostly uphill, retracing the steps of Israel when they first went to pick up the Ark of Shiloh. He's out of breath, disheveled in his appearance. He finally reaches Shiloh. He begins to spread the news. We lost. They ravaged us. 30,000 dead. The city started crying out, loud moans in the street. People beating their chest, saying, no! Tears are flying, hope is dying. People are on their knees yelling, why? Eli, the high priest, begins to hear the entire city in mourning. His heart drops. He's been waiting to hear the news from the battle. He is the one that gave permission to take the ark. He should have known better. He sent his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the front lines. He's shown that he would do anything to protect them, even if it meant trotting out the ark of God like a magic superweapon. According to verse 15, Eli is 98 years old and he's basically blind. Verse 16, And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And Eli said, How did it go, my son? When you're 98, you can call anyone son. How did it go, my son? Verse 17, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. That line is repeated five times in the story. Never in history had the ark of God fallen into enemy hands. This is a big deal. There is not an event of similar magnitude in the Old Testament. As soon as the dusty messenger mentioned the ark of God, not Eli's sons, but the ark of God, Eli fell over backward and broke his neck. 
The last line we have on Eli is, he died, for the man was old and heavy. The text says Eli ruled for 40 years. That's a whole generation. The rule of Eli, David, and Solomon each lasted 40 years. It's a figure of speech for an entire generation. Eli's death is not the only thing that happened. Something horrible happened in verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. She drops to her knees in premature labor due to shock. As she was giving birth, her midwife said, Don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. In verse 21, And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. Then she died. In a single day, this boy, Ichabod, lost his grandfather, his uncle, his father, and his mother. All on the day of his birth. He's now an orphan. The mystery woman, Phineas' wife, we don't know her name, but she was spiritually superior to, to all of them. She lived in a priest's home. Everyone in Shiloh knew her husband was stepping out on her. He didn't have it. The real stuff. The genuine fear of God. The legit awareness of God's holiness. But it seems she did. She gave more theology in her dying words than her husband ever came to fully understand. She named her son Ichabod, which is like naming your son genocide. Ichabod means no glory, no weight, no presence. You can actually translate the, the name in the form of a question. Where is the glory? The special sign or symbol of God's glory was the ark. Where is it now? It's gone. The glory is gone. Every time that little boy is called, the people hear, where is the glory? They don't even realize that they're calling a child. Everyone just answers, the glory has departed. Archaeological discovery number four. God is still on his heavenly throne, even when his earthly throne is captured. Wasn't the Lord able to protect his own furniture for his own glory? Yes. They captured God's box, but they didn't capture God. You think God is concerned with how the Philistine news outlets are viewing him? They can just put in all of their newspapers. Yahweh is defeated. This isn't about them or their nation. It's about something bigger. There are times in history when it looks like God has lost. You better close your newspaper and open the Bible. He's still on the throne. The ark was captured because God abandoned Israel. None of these events happened by accident. They were all part of God's plan to chasten his people judge sinners, and eventually bring Israel back to himself. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, here's something I want you to keep in mind. All of chapter 5 details the seven months after the ark was captured. Chapter 4 details the events of a few days. Chapter 5 details the events of seven months. Israel took the ark, notice on the map here, Israel took the ark from Shiloh to Ebenezer and then lost it there in battle. The Philistines take it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. It's about 19 miles to this chief city of the Philistines. Now why take it to Ashdod? Because, verse 2, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Why did they bring it? Because the temple of Dagon was there. Dagon was the national god of the Philistines. He was their principal deity. Dagon was the father of Baal. Dagon was the daddy of them all. They now have the ark, which is a bit weird to them that Israel's God doesn't have an image like all the other gods, but only a, a gold box. Anyway, they view the box like a trophy of war, a conquered relic. The Philistines are equally ready to adopt another deity. They practice syncretism. We won't destroy the ark. We'll accommodate it. They believed all deities should be honored, so they created temples and shrines to house them all. Each time they conquered a new tribe, they would add the defeated deity to their pantheon of gods. They viewed the ark as Israel's god. See, no battle was just between two nations. Every battle was between two gods. So they believed that their god had defeated Israel's god. Whatever power the defeated God possessed would be harnessed to the purposes of Dagon. They, they set up the ark next to Dagon, Big Daddy God, and they announced, tomorrow morning, 8 a.m., we're going to be opening the temple, and we invite all of you in the city to come and see our latest trophy of war. Verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. I love this. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. The, the battle between Israel and the Philistines is over. But the battle between Yahweh and Dagon has just begun. Face down on the ground is a common posture of submission. I think the narrator is doing a little wink to us. It's comedy. Dagon has fallen and he can't get up. He has been toppled. Daddy God needs support. He needs help. They must put him back in his place. What they didn't realize is that Yahweh had already done that. Put him in his place. Something is wrong with your God if you must pick him up off the floor. All other gods have to be propped up, but not our God. I don't know how the uh, leaders of the Temple of Dagon explained it away that morning. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, we're, got, we're having to shut all this down. The exhibit is closed. Some Philistine teenagers snuck in last night and damaged some of the artifacts, and we need to close it down immediately. Come back in the morning. The city says, okay. Verse 4. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. 
and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. <laughs> now Dagon's decapitated and dismembered, lying limbless, his head and hands cut off. And, and this is significant because severed ha hands and head were war trophies. Uh, they didn't set them up to display, but they assisted in getting the correct body count. I actually read this uh, two weeks ago, a non-inspired historical account of men returning from battle with warheads hanging on their back and then hands hanging from their belts. In Ebenezer right now, there are 34,000 headless and handless Israelites laying on some farmer's field. What will David later do to Goliath? Cut his head off and take it to his superior. This isn't the first or the last head wound that God will deliver. In Genesis 3.15, God promised he would one day deliver the ultimate head wound to Satan. This is also fulfilled prophecy. Hannah sang about this event. She said, the adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. There on the floor is Dagon, broken in pieces. John Wycliffe said Dagon had the head and hands of a man and the body of a fish. So it's a headless fish on the floor. Later theologians reject Dagon as a fish god. They say he was a corn god and he had a, a wheat head. E either way, after that day he would become the superglue god. They had to piece him back together. Archaeological discovery number five. You can't put God in a box but he can put other gods in a box or on the floor. God has no rivals. He will not be mocked. This event lived on in Ashdod because right where Dagon's head and hands were, the threshold, the entrance, worshipers for years, years after, would still avoid stepping on that threshold. Now, in case the inhabitants of the city missed the fishtail lying on the floor, God plagued the people with tumors. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. It goes on to say in verse 7, For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Do, do you catch the irony? Remember Dagon's hands? Now God's hands send tumors. God's hands are heavy against Dagon. Doesn't seem fair. Dagon doesn't even have hands anymore. Historians have debated about what caused these tumors. The KJV, the old King Jimmy, translates it emeralds, which literally is hemorrhoids. But people are going to be dying from this. So I don't think that's it. I've known people who wanted to die from hemorrhoids, but none that actually did. One scholar said that it was lymph gland swellings in the neck, under the arms, and in private places. However, most historians believe it was some form of the bubonic plague. If you've ever seen pictures of this, you should just research it. 
There's, there's strong evidence found in the next two chapters that it was the bubonic plague, but I'll save that for next week. These five Philistine cities began to play hot potato with the ark. They just keep passing it down the line. It goes from Ashdod to Gath. And it's an interesting decision. I mean, talk about politically passing the buck. Alistair Begg said, now presumably, the person in Ashdod who said, send it off to Gath, had no relatives living in Gath. The citizens were not excited to see it roll into town. Guess what happened? Tumors broke out in that city as well. Tumors broke out on everyone in town, young and old. Babies with tumors. Young mothers with tumors. Military men with tumors. Senior citizens with tumors. So what do they do? Verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They are experiencing the wrath of God. Now, it's now hit three of the five big cities. It's hit Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron. Verse 12, the men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Their cry reached heaven, the throne of heaven, before the very throne they had supposedly captured. What is happening here? God is marching through the Philistines' territory and getting victory after victory without one Israelite. God doesn't need their armies or their weapons. He's capable of defeating the sea peoples without the help of his peoples. At the end of his life, Samson killed a lot of Philistines in a, in a Dagon temple in, in Gaza. But a greater than Samson is here. God doesn't even need a long-haired muscular judge. God is not simply content with one victory either. He went on a victory tour. A victory procession throughout the Philistines' land. Archaeological truth number six. Chapter 4 tells us you cannot manipulate God's power. Chapter 5 tells us you cannot contain it either. You cannot manipulate God's power. You cannot contain it either. God says, I will not permit you to use the ark like a magic wand. But neither will I allow the Philistines to, de to demean me like a trophy of war. Yahweh is simply bigger than the Israelite and Philistines theological configuration of him. God is bigger than the Israelite and Philistine theological configuration of him. Some of you say, Kyle, I'm not a Christian. Are you trying to convince me to accept this God who afflicted men, women, boys, and girls with tumors to prove that their tribal God wasn't the true God? Is that what you're trying to do? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Here's why. You have something going on that's worse than a tumor. It doesn't bulge out of your skin. It inhabits every part of who you are. Tumors aren't the real problem. Sin is. You are a sinner. 
You broke God's law. The Ten Commandments and the Ark, you broke them. You're not just a sinner by choice. You are a sinner by nature. You were born into sin. Actually, you're just as bad as the Philistines. You might as well have stolen the Ark of God yourself. Your sin is an all-out assault on a holy God. But God made a way to bring you back to himself. See, it's all in the gold box. Once a year, the high priest would sprinkle a lamb's blood on the lid of the ark. It pictured blood covering broken commandments, blood covering sin. The gold ark was just a teaching tool to a greater reality. 3,000 years later, God sent his son to die on a battlefield. He was the last lamb, the final lamb. His perfect sinless blood was sprinkled on the lid once and for all as an offering. Never to be repeated again. Propitiation. That's a $13 word meaning blood appeasing the wrath of God. That's what the ark was all about. That's what salvation is all about. Dear friend, judgment is coming for all non-Christians. And it's worse than tumors. It is the eternal wrath of God. Repent, dear Philistine. And cry for mercy. I am evidence of this truth. God can take a Philistine and make him a child of Israel. Church, if there is one word that describes today's passage... If there's one name that describes today's passage, it is the name Ichabod. The glory has departed. But we know that glory is a code word. God. God has departed. Driven away by the sin of his people. Ichabod is the Old Testament word. Ichabod, God is gone. But there is a New Testament word. It's counterpart. Emmanuel. God with us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Ichabod, God has left the camp. Emmanuel, God has come in to the camp. In Jesus, the glory doesn't depart. God has come again to us, not in a box, but in a body. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.